welcome to Utrecht University Science Podcast called Of Bones, Brains and Pink Elephants. I'm Kat and I study biomedical sciences. I'm Joel, I study biomedical sciences. And I'm Ruben and I study science communication and education. Why are we here today, guys? Well, we asked our listeners what burning science questions they had, so we could try to answer them. Yeah, so this podcast is going to have um, three episodes, each of them answering a different burning question or at least getting inspired by uh, one burning question of our listeners. The first of which is, uh, why do we need to brush our teeth and why didn't our ancestors? In the beginning, you guys didn't really believe that this would be an interesting question to answer, right? No, not really, because <laughs> I was wondering, didn't our ancestors brush their teeth? Precisely. <laughs> That's a good question, Joelle. <laughs> um, so I also was questioning this in the beginning and I was thinking like, oh, it's an interesting question, but didn't they? And then I started thinking about, but how did we know um, they didn't? And how could we find out? And how far in the past can we go um, trying to find this information? But um, let's start in the beginning and... I'll just explain some of the background and I'll actually answer the question uh, first. Uh, but then stay tuned because we have some really interesting interviews um, with a bioarchaeologist um, and a researcher studying isotope-based archaeology. So let's start at the beginning. So as a biomedical student, um, this isn't my uh, typical realm of expertise or interest. But the first thing, I mean, what do you guys do when you don't know anything about the topic? Google. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I, I first resorted to Google, but then uh, it kind of brought me to all these. Um, actually, a lot of people wondered the same question, but it actually brought me to all these blogs, um, which are really interestingly written. But then I noticed that the blogs were kind of referring to other blogs and, and they there were hyperlinks, but there weren't really any sources. So I kind of took it as like a bridge to jump off of, but I didn't really um, take a lot of information from, from the blogs. Um, they actually mostly had these um, like weird early toothpaste, tooth powder recipes, which fun fact, toothpaste or tooth powder dates back to ancient Egypt, 5000 BC, and it included uh, abrasive elements and refreshing elements. Abrasive elements were kind of like crushed eggshells and oxen hoof powder, which I don't know who would want to put oxen hoof powder <laughs> um, in their mouth, and refreshing elements like ginseng or mint. But this is kind of as much as we would cover when it comes to toothpaste. Well, this information on the blogs is surely interesting. I wondered, like, where can I start looking in instead and, like, think, like, ancient history and teeth. And then I looked at some, um, actually, like, dental practitioner organizations, like um, American Dental Associations, that were quite a good start to jump off of. And, um, of course, there's uh, also these, like, kind of rules when you're looking for nice, um, reliable information that a website's called um, ending with .edu, .gov or .org are usually better when it comes to credibility and also museums that, of course, deal with uh, ancient remains and, and include teeth are really good sources of basic information. Um, actually followed by perhaps um, magazines online and physical that publish articles relating to... to um, journals and, and journal uh, publications and, and some studies and original studies. 
And so they usually uh, interview the lead scientist, which is, I think, quite a nice way to, to establish whether uh, the source is good or not. But now to the interesting stuff. Um, imagine you're not a modern person and all you have around is nature. What would you clean your teeth with? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> Thank um, you, Ruben. <laughs> I would uh, use the, the hairs of a hedgehog. The hairs of a hedgehog. How do you call this? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's more like a toothpick. Yeah, uh, true, true. Okay. Mm. Uh, Brushing? Yeah, but with what? With with what? Yeah, I think maybe they use like big hairs or horse hairs. Mm. Yeah, but that's that's thinking way ahead. Actually, the first the first tools used for for tooth cleaning were actually. Um, frayed bits of branches, um, also called chew sticks, for example, from licorice plant or, or mastic tree. The oldest known chew sticks were found in Babylonian city of Ur. I don't know how that's pronounced. I pre- I presume it's just Ur. Ur. Mm-hmm. Ur. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, approximately 3500 BC or in Egyptian tombs, um, also dating to around that time. So it was quite some time ago, but after the toothbrushing powder (laughs) and these tooth cleaning sticks are actually still used um, in the Middle East and some other parts of the world like Africa, South America, Asia and elsewhere. Um, And they essentially, so I've I've watched some videos of of how these um, tooth cleaning sticks are are used and they're actually bits of stick that you kind of score around like one or two centimeters from the top and then you take off the bark and then there's this fibrous material that you kind of have to chew around and that kind of acts as a toothbrush so you would you would um take these sticks and actually brush them up and down and uh, that created kind of some sort of like abrasive method or abrasive way to to get rid of stuff on your teeth um these chew sticks are actually often called miswek which is from arabic and it's translated to a toothpick or a tooth cleaning stick but um different cultures um within and different um Arabic dialects might call them a bit differently and they usually come from the roots of the hara tree I've I had my friend tell me how to pronounce this, um, which is also known as uh, Salvadora Persica. So how do these sticks work? I mean, from the obvious rolling them up and down to remove the plaque, there's also silica that's contained within them as an abrasive agent that can fight uh, dental plaque um, and that can kind of combat tooth staining. Other than the 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 kind of uh, physical properties of the sticks. The root of the hara tree also has um, antibacterial properties. So in my view, it's essentially um, like a stick with a built-in toothbrush properties. It's just slightly impractical to use because once the bristles weaken, um, you have to kind of cut it off again and refray the ends. Uh, it might be apparently quite um, hard to reach the back of the mouth, but I don't know. I've never used a tooth cleaning stick, uh, but apparently um, effectiveness-wise, they're quite comparable to the toothbrushes that we use um, now. I was also wondering, like, how can you find out about what people and our ancestors did with their teeth 
when you don't have the physical evidence, like you really can't get the, the tooth cleaning stick anywhere, um, like the ancient Babylon or, or something where it wouldn't be, um, you know, uh, it would disintegrate essentially. But can we tell something about teeth of our ancestors or, or their teeth cleaning habits just straight from the teeth? And it turns out we can. <laughs> So on the teeth, there's a layer of dental calculus, which is kind of like a cla uh, calcified plaque formed by bacteria. And the field of dental calculus analysis has been quite a new one or quite a young one, but it's becoming a really sought after source of env environmental and biological information. Um, and we were very fortunate enough to be able to talk to Dr. Amanda Henry of Leiden University, who has been using uh, information gathered from dental calculus and specifically from particles of food and, and other um, remains that get lodged within the calculus, which are also called micro-remains. And these micro-remains can be used as markers of diet. And this is exactly what um, Dr. Amanda Henry uh, has been doing in, uh, in her career, but I will let her introduce herself and um, kind of tell us about this exciting field of uh, archaeology and micro-remains. So my name is Amanda Henry. I'm an assistant professor currently here at Leiden University. Um, I started out uh, I, my training was in the U.S., so I started out as an anthropologist. And in the U.S., anthropology is this four fields uh, combined topic where you do archaeology and physical anthropology and cultural anthropology and linguistics, all in the same program. Um, and I focused in, well, I did a little bit of everything. My, my undergraduate was excavating a Roman-era temple in Petra, Jordan. Um, and... <laughs> After that, I went to uh, a graduate program more in physical anthropology. So uh, I did my uh, graduate degree at the George Washington University. Again, anthropology program, but now focused on human evolution. So my background is really trying to study um, who we are and how we got here. And as part of that program, we had to do internships. I, I was able to work at the Smithsonian under a researcher who was doing plant microromains, starch grains and phyllets. And she said, look, I've seen somebody who's done this in dental calculus. Why don't you try that? And that was the start of trying to reconstruct diet, looking at plant microromains preserved in dental calculus. That brings us to perhaps the, the other question. What is dental calculus and what are microromains? So dental calculus is mineralized plaque on teeth. The plaque forms because you have bacteria in your mouth, and they like to eat your saliva, they like to eat the foods that you eat, and as they grow, they sort of grow up this quite thick film on your teeth, and every so often, and we don't know what the trigger is actually, um, that film mineralizes. Your saliva is super saturated in calcium phosphate to keep your teeth from eroding away from acidic foods, and that mineralizes out onto the surface of this bacteria pellicle. And then bacteria grow on top of this mineralized surface, and then it mineralizes again. So you end up with this onion-like, much more complex, but, but layered surface of densely mineralized material that traps food particles, traps anything that ends up in your mouth can get incorporated into the calculus. 
So we actually uh, just did a study where we found a whole poppy seed stuck in somebody's calculus. Um, so anything in the mouth can end up trapped in this mineral context. Uh, you asked what plant microremains are. They are, as the name implies, microscopic particles that usually come from plants or from fungi or from other material that all have um, characteristic shapes that we can identify looking at them under the microscope. And we, we match the morphology based on a reference collection. So you have phytoliths, which are silica bodies um, that the plants produce as a form of defense, usually, um, in their outer tissues. Um, you have starch grains, which is how the plants uh, store their energy. They turn the sugars that they make from photosynthesis into these long glucose chains and then build them into these starch granules. But you also have things like pollen. Pollen is another microremain. You can also find fungal spores. You can find little bits of feathers. You can find uh, bits of insects. You can find bits of charcoal. All of this can get incorporated into the calculus. And can we perhaps find out something about this idea of, of because of course the, the um, topic of the episode is whether people clean their teeth in the past mm. and now we don't have to. How much can we find out about this um, if, if people had even uh, the need to clean their mm. teeth? And what, I mean, this is not your typical expertise, no. but you could perhaps comment on um, the probabilities of that. So when, we brush our teeth today. It's to disrupt that bacterial pellicle a little bit, but also to remove sticky, goopy food. That most of the food that we eat is really highly processed. It's also full of starch, and that tends to stick on the surface of your teeth really well. And then that encourages certain kind of bacteria to grow in your mouth, particularly bacteria that eat the starch and then produce acids that erode your teeth. And eventually you end up with bacteria that are eating your teeth, and that forms caries. So the reason that we brush our teeth now is usually to prevent the formation of caries. Calculus is something a little bit different. It's not considered a dental disease per se. It forms normally. It doesn't look really nice. Uh, so mostly we want to get rid of it <laughs> sort of for aesthetic reasons. And if you get too much, it can lead to problems with oral health, gingivitis, etc. So keeping that to a minimum. It's also what the dentist removes with his picks, because once it's mineralized, you can't get it off with a toothbrush. Mm -hmm. um, the formation of caries and calculus depends a lot on what you're eating. So like I said, we're eating these foods that stick to our teeth a lot in the present day diets, and that wasn't necessarily the case in the past. If they were eating very abrasive diets that removed food particles from the teeth or that weren't so rich in highly processed foods, um, you didn't have the same prevalence of diseases. And especially prior to agriculture, you just weren't consuming as many starchy foods. Maybe then jumping off of the micro-remains, mm -hmm. uh, what are the types of material that you can find, DNA or, or other materials? Sure. So, uh, as it forms, like I said, dental calculus incorporates everything that's in the mouth. Um, Micromains, poppy seeds, big things, but also um, all of the DNA of the bacteria itself that was in the mouth, also some of the bacteria, sorry, some of the DNA from the, the, the host, we say, the, the human itself, um, but as well DNA and potentially also proteins from 
the, the foods that were consumed. So some people have been exploring, analyzing dental calculus for uh, these other residues or DNA proteins um, that, that can be incorporated as well. Mm-hmm. And in terms of food um, getting lodged in uh, the teeth, mm-hmm. can you then, um, because I, I would suppose that you have perhaps one or, or a few samples of these teeth from a few individuals in a sp- very specific area. What are the um, kind of um, observations and conclusions you can make from such a limited um, sample then? Sure, so uh, when, d- I'll, I'll speak mostly about the analysis of plant microremains, as that's the area that I'm most familiar with. And it's true, um, not all plants produce starches and phytoliths, so they're not going to be uh, preserved in the dental calculus in a way we can identify them. Um, The production, the the sort of sheer number of starches and phytoliths that a plant produces can vary, so some plants can be way overrepresented and others much less. The way they're incorporated in the calculus is also highly biased against certain sizes and certain shapes. Um, So we have a lot of trouble saying, for example, uh, how many different kinds of plants were consumed because obviously some are missing from that record. We can't talk about the relative proportion of plants that were consumed. Um, We also can't discuss non plant foods in the diet, like a proportion of meat to plants. But what we can say very clearly, if we find a microfossil of a certain plant, that that was consumed, that was part of that individual's diet, that was definitely eaten. So you have to pick a a research question that matches the limitations or restrictions of the method. Mm -hmm. So we can use it, for example, uh, tracing the the first spread of of certain plants into certain areas, or the first consumption of certain foods that we're interested in. Um, And you need to have a sizable number of individuals. We've seen that not uh, all of the foods in the diet will be represented in each individual in that population. So uh, you do have to be somewhat picky with the kinds of questions that you can answer with this method. Yeah, and I also know, and you've mentioned this before, that your student, Bjorn, is working on an artificial dental calculus. Yes. Uh, what is the point or what is, what's the key message of the, of the research? Why are you doing the research and what are you hoping to get out of it? And how are you making the research? Because I also <laughs> think that's very, the, the method was very interesting. So um, we want to make this method as good and reliable as possible. And uh, we want to test whether different extraction methods for getting the micro-remains out of the calculus are better. We want to be sure we understand how the micro-remains are being incorporated into the calculus. But you can't do any of that with archaeological material. So what Bjorn is doing is he is um, building a model calculus system Uh, We did this sort of first following along with some of the research that had been done at ACTA, which is the Dutch Dentistry Research um, Institute, and I will have to find the name of that for you because I don't (laughs) actually remember what it stands for. Um, They had developed a model to build dental calculus so they could study it, so they could get rid of it and we slightly modified their protocols so that we could do it here, so that we can grow our own, 
and put in starches of known quantities and uh, different salivary amylase, which is an enzyme that you produce in your mouth that breaks down starches to see how much gets incorporated, how you can then extract it, um, and to be able to test some of these unknowns on a closed system. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way he does it um, is at the very beginning, uh, we have to get a donation of saliva from, uh, from a willing donor. Um, and then that's used to inoculate um, these, we have a 24 well plate and these lids that hang down into the liquid at the bottom of the plate. And uh, in that liquid is artificial saliva, the donor saliva, and some food for the bacteria, basically. And the bacteria then colonize these, um, these pegs that are hanging down into the liquid. And then every day you have to feed them a sugar solution. Uh, and then towards the end of the experiment, you can start to feed them starches, and then you give them a mineral treatment so that they mineralize. And uh, we've done a couple different experiments to see how well this artificial saliva, uh, artificial calculus matches real calculus, and it seems we're getting the right mineral constituents. And um, we've had a couple different good results showing that in terms of sheer numbers, we're getting a tiny, tiny fraction of what we put into the system actually incorporated in the calculus itself, but it's still getting there, and it's mm-hmm. still getting there in quantifiable numbers. So it's kind of fun. Um, it does make the hallway outside of my lab stink <laughs> because, as you imagine, it's somebody's oral bacteria <laughs> that were growing in a shaking incubator for uh, about three weeks. So. Our, our colleagues are not always happy when we're running a new experiment. But concentrated uh, morning breath Yes, situation. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right, and can you uh, perhaps pick out some um, of your favorite um, recent findings mm. of, of yours or, or your colleagues? I know we've spoken about the this oral microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, can you maybe expand on that? If sure. that is is your, one of your yeah, uh, I was I was sort of was involved in a study where they were trying to understand the bacterial communities, um, the variation among living populations because that's something that hadn't been explored before, but also trying to get um, information about the oral micro- microbiome of Neanderthals and of a variety of great apes um, to try to understand how this may have evolved. And some interesting patterns, um, I'm not an expert in this at all, uh, but it seems like the oral microbiome is highly conserved, meaning that it doesn't change that much in contrast to what we had expected coming from looking at gut microbiome, which does vary quite a bit especially depending on what you're eating and your health status and so on. Um, But we did see some interesting things like, even in Neanderthals, um, the bacteria in the mouth had acquired genes, probably through some sort of horizontal gene transfer, to break down starches, uh, suggesting that starch was being regularly enough introduced to the mouth of Neanderthals to make it a selective advantage to to break down starch as food. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in contrast to the great apes, which the, there, there is no evidence of uh, genes to produce amylase to break down starches. So 
it seems like the consumption of starchy foods is quite ancient in mm -hmm. our lineage. Um, and, and this is quite a big debate in human evolution. Um, when did we become reliant on starchy foods? Is it only in, since agriculture? How much of the diet did it represent? Some people would like to portray many of our ancestors uh, as carnivores, basically, relying almost exclusively on meat. Uh, and other people, uh, yeah, shake their head uh, <laughs> to that and, and agree that it's uh, much more likely that we're coming from an ape-like physiology uh, where most of the calories must come from plant foods. But then again, plant, not all plant foods are starchy. So when did this sort of starch-heavy emphasis come in? And, and we, we still don't know. We're still looking. How far in the past can mm -hmm. you go? What are the oldest remains that you have analyzed? So I have uh, recovered phytoliths from oh, a roughly one million year old uh, fossil of a species called Australopithecus sediba. Mm -hmm. And actually that's the cast of the skull just mm -hmm. up there of the individual I looked at. And you can see he's very small brained. Um, so uh, starch grains are organic material, so there probably is a limit for how long they stick around. Um, 100,000 years at a best guess, though people have uh, reported on finding much older starch grains, um, even from Olduvai Gorge, which is a very famous site in Tanzania, uh, finding starch grains from a million and a half, so there's a potential they can survive that long. Um, phytoliths, there's an even greater potential, they're silica, they're sort of inert. Uh, mm -hmm. People have found phytoliths in dinosaur coprolites, which I just makes me happy. I find just that very fun. Dino poop, essentially. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so there's a potential to find more information. As for proteins, DNA, other residues, again, that's sort of limited by the degradation rate of of different um, organic materials, and that depends on the context. Is it wet, dry, hot, cold, variable? But I wanted to touch quickly. Your question is like. Why do we have to brush our teeth now yes. and we didn't in the past? Mm -hmm. And I've been involved with two projects where we've seen evidence that people cared for their teeth in the past. Um, three, actually. One of them, and actually it was this Australopithecus sediba, the material that we found was consistent with wood or bark, uh, which could have been uh, diet-related. Mm -hmm. Eating inner bark of trees can have some sweet, can have some nutrients, but it could equally plausibly be tooth cleaning activities, mm -hmm. using, using sticks to clean your teeth. Um, so that's at a million years old in a very different species. Much more recently I was involved with uh, uh, work on a site in North Africa called Tafaralt, and here we saw sort of strange to me where uh, in between the teeth, these, these gouges in between the teeth, at the same time, they were finding all of these very thin bone needles at the site. And one possible interpretation, and this was just me holding some teeth and saying, oh, hey, this bone needle fits right in that hole. No more, <laughs> like, we didn't do any actual analysis to see if the wear matched or anything like this. But one possibility is that these gouges in the tooth were caused by toothpicking. And mm -hmm. toothpicking with a wooden toothpick won't leave marks on your teeth, but with a bone toothpick it would. So mm -hmm. these, uh, the diet reconstruction for, for this population was a lot of snails, 
but also a lot of acorns. So they could have been eating a lot of really starchy foods at the same time that needed to be removed. That from can the get teeth. easily stuck. I can imagine it's kind of maybe like popcorn or something like well, that. Well, so it's it's less bit. less papery. They they probably made something more like a porridge or a bread out mm -hmm. of it. Um, ah, okay. But potentially, I don't know. Maybe something in the in the meat of the snails is also very fibrous. Or I've never eaten. <laughs> That kind of snail, mm. so I don't know <laughs> if it gets stuck in your teeth, but they might have been doing that. And the last one was uh, Upper Paleolithic from Italy, and this was a case of caries, uh, where we saw evidence of a hole in the chewing surface of one of the molars that had been drilled out, and then probably um, packed with some sort of beeswax in order to to cover the hole. Mm -hmm. so, so, like in dentistry, the beginnings of the dentistry. The beginnings of dentistry, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so very early uh, tooth care mm -hmm. that was going on. So you have um, people are aware that if you lose the ability to chew, it's very difficult to live, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you very painful. And very painful. Yes. And then we forgot to thank Amanda for her interview. I mean, we did thank her in the end, but that was right after uh, we spoke about Game of Thrones. And she showed us a calendar full of micro-remain pictures. <laughs> we tried to identify them, but we failed horribly. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, there were some uh, parasite eggs and feathers and that sort of thing. And then she showed us a whole books full of like reference pictures that she uses to identify different starches and pyolists and everything. And those books were written by two lady PhD um, uh, uh, candidates, but the author of the book was a male. So you see, and it was from 1906. So it was, it shows you how the, the age was back then, the time period. <laughs> <laughs> so Amanda's research was more about what our ancestors ate. Um, but then I wondered, what else can you find out from old teeth, or even teeth now, but what else can you find from teeth? And I stumbled upon um, Dr. Lisette Kotker of the Freie Universiteit uh, Amsterdam, and she actually specializes in isotope analysis um, and forensic remains and artifacts uh, that range from the Paleolithic, which is the Old Stone Age, about two and a half million years ago, to 10,000 BC, and... Um, she also analyzes modern era forensic, uh, for example, uh, remains, for example, cold cases. Um, and she does this using isotopes and mass spectrometry. But just to give you a background, um, do you guys know what isotopes are? Isotopes are like different versions of the same elements, right? Like carbon and oxygen mm -hmm. then with a different mass. Yeah. So essentially the same element. Um, same amount of protons and electrons, but different numbers of neutrons. And using mass spectrometry, you can separate uh, these isotopes and their ratio can tell you a lot of information about the geographical um, origin of, of the remains and of the artifacts. So this is what Lisette Kotker uh, specializes in. And she's going to tell us something about her research. My name is Lisette Kotker. I'm an assistant professor 
in uh, archaeological and forensic isotope research at the Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam, which is actually a small group. It's only two, 2.5, three of us within the geology and geochemistry cluster mm -hmm. of the Earth Sciences Department. And I have a background in Earth Sciences, actually. Uh, but back in the old days, they still had a, um, a study course that was called Geoarchaeology. So it was about 50% Earth Sciences and 50% Archaeology. Mm -hmm. So I got my Master of Science in well, Earth Sciences with a specialization in Archaeometry, which is um, which is actually the, the analytical uh, well, research of archaeological artifacts, so mm -hmm. the inorganic material. But I was more interested in the organic part, mm -hmm. in, in human remains, etc. Um, back in 2007, there was no opportunity in the Netherlands to study things like that. So um, I was given two little fellowships um, to go to the UK. So I went to Bournemouth University, got another master's in osteoarchaeology. So I specialized myself into human and animal bones. And then I came back, I worked as an archaeozoologist for about 10 years. Uh, but also I found myself a junior uh, researcher position at the Vrije Universiteit. Mm -hmm. And so for the past 13 years, uh, I was just dedicated to cell isotope archaeology in the archaeological commercial world because at that point it wasn't there yet so we knew we could do well a lot of e uh, research into paleo diet and, and paleo mobility mm -hmm. but nobody knew about it yet so i thought it was my purpose to sell it and to <laughs> to make it a a, a staple actually in mm -hmm. in archaeological research and and today we're 13 years later 14 and and we're actually at that point that practically you know in every single excavation in which they find human remains strontium and dna research is is carried out mm -hmm. so um and i'm happy to be involved in most of the research and so you specialize in isotope analysis yes and you take the isotopes mainly from or you extract the isotopes ma mainly from teeth and tooth enamel but can you explain what is the difference between enamel and dental calculus and, and how can you then extract and, and find out about the, um, the isotope remains within the teeth? Yes, well, there, there are actually quite a lot of isotope systems you can apply, apply on, on human remains. Um, but the most we use, we indeed use on the dental enamel. <laughs> so the dental enamel is the hardest material you have in your body. It's about 98% of what we call an hydroxyapatite. So it's an inorganic material. And that's actually the biggest difference compared to the dental enamel you've seen before, uh, the dental calculus you've seen before. Dental calculus is a organic substance mm -hmm. um, that is actually, you know, it's it's not normal to the human body. So it's it's something that it precipitates on all the food and your drinks, you know, you consume. And if you don't brush your teeth, you know, thoroughly, it will stick, it will remain mm -hmm. on your dental enamel. So it's something, the calculus is something that's not supposed to be on the teeth. It's the calculus, ideally. something indeed, that's not supposed to be on the teeth. 
uh, and your dental enamel has to be on the teeth. And so how do you extract the enamel from the teeth for analysis? Yeah, good question. Um, so what, for instance, Amanda was really looking into was the calculus. So she will sample the calculus. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing I actually take off my teeth. So <laughs> if you have a teeth, um, I try to clean it first a little bit with just normal water. And we have a little bar burr with a diamond uh, drill bit. Drill bit, indeed. And what you do is you clean that little tooth with that diamond tipped drill bit. What we do next is for the types of research we normally do, and uh, we focus specifically actually on the, the strontium isotope system, you use about one milligram of material. Mm -hmm. So, and that's actually barely nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so you clean the outer surface, take a little sample, collect it on a weighing paper, as we call it, put mm -hmm. it in a little Eppendorf, so a little, uh, a little centrifuge tube, that is, and that's it, actually. Mm -hmm. So it isn't the, the, the most difficult science of all. So what is everything that you can tell from the, from the teeth and from the um, isotopes about diets of people? Yeah, well, in the end of the day, if we look, so for most of the archaeological research we do, we focus on three isotope systems, which mm -hmm. is the strontium isotope system, the oxygen isotope system, and the carbon isotope system. The first two of them, the oxygen and the strontium, they actually specifically look into where the food you consumed came from. Mm -hmm. and, and I think for the strontium isotope system, that this requires a little bit more information. Um, so the strontium isotopes are in the geological subsurface. The older the geological subsurface, the higher the strontium isotope ratio is. So if we are if we're living here in a recent geological area, and the most basic premise in, in the field of research we do is that most, you know, the vast major majority of the food you consume is from that local region. So everything that grows into that geological subsurface that extracts what we call the biologically available strontium from that subsurface. And by subsurface, you mean the soil? Yes, so you, okay. have, you have the bedrock that mm -hmm. weathers into a soil, and in that soil, the plants start to grow, we eat the plants. So eventually, all the strontium you find in the geological subsurface will, come, will become part of our food chain because of the soil, the plants, and the fact that we eat it. Mm -hmm. And because we eat the plants, the strontium that was once in your geological subsurface is now part of your bones, your hair, uh, mm -hmm. and your dental enamel. And it becomes part of your dental enamel during mineralization. So if we look at your first permanent molar, you have three of them, the first, the second, and the first, the third. And even though it erupts at the age of six or seven, mm -hmm. The enamel was mineralizing between birth and three years of age. Mm -hmm. So if we extract the strontium out of your first molar, it gives me information about where you, aka where your food came from in the first three years of your life. And so the, the, so the isotopes get incorporated when they're not out yet? Yep. 
wood so is still in, in they, the jaw. Yeah. Ah, so they can't get incorporated once they're once the teeth are out. No, no, because here's yeah. the thing: you have dental enamel forming cells and meloblasts, and once the teeth erupts, those cells disappear. Uh -huh. So, and if you do the same type of research on the on the M1, so the first molar, the second molar, and the third molar, mm -hmm. we can reconstruct paleomobility, you know, if you move from A to B to C, and that means that your food, the provenance of your food changed as well, then you can see that back in your molars, in oh. the strontium isotope system or in the strontium isotope ratio. So that's most important we can do with strontium and eventually also oxygen is we can't tell you what you have been eating, mm -hmm. but I can say where the food you ate came from. Ah. And then we have the third isotope system, which is the carbon isotope system. And the carbon isotope system can tell you sort of what you've been eating. And it tells me whether you've ate a lot of C3 or C4 vegetation. And those are the two photosynthetic pathways we have. We actually have more, but those are the two more important ones here. Um, and if I have you, for instance, I extract the carbon iso uh, isotope ratio out of it, analyze it, and it's, let's say, minus nine per mil. Well, if I see that minus nine in your tooth, that tells me that you didn't spend the vast majority of your youth in Northwestern Europe, because we barely have any C4 food in Northwestern Europe. Mm. So that places you somewhere else, as in Eastern Europe or Southern Europe. And so what are your favorite conclusions and your favorite findings relating to food and mobility uh, from your career? I know that these are tough choices, but can you pick out some some nice examples to present? Yeah, tough tough choices, difficult um, to pick some. I think in the end of the day, it's the story that we are able to tell based on those isotope cyst or isotope ratios we we get out of your teeth. Um, so, for instance, in the nineteen eighties, there was this this wonderful Roman. Um, cemetery excavated in Falkenburg, Zuid-Holland. And it's weird because during the Roman period, you know, people got cremated. But here we have this big cemetery with all these inhumations. And they were weird, you know, there were underbellies or prone burials or there were double burials. And, you know, and at that point, also you know, 40 years ago now, um, it triggered something in the archaeologists. This was weird, the, the fact that, were, that, uh, that they were buried was weird. Um, and of course, that, that gave them some idea about, you know, them being from somewhere else, maybe, or not being a part of the Roman uh, society at that point, because everything was weird. And well, today, 40 years later, we were finally able to analyze them. So we run the oxygen and the carbon and the strontium isotope systems. And I can tell that indeed most of them were definitely not from the Netherlands. And we did the same in another part of the, of, of the, of the Netherlands, also a Roman cemetery, also a lot of inhumations. And what you can see is that the level of mobility, so where people came from, was actually linked 
to the political stability. So when it was to, uh, political stable in the early middle Roman period, there was little mobility as well. But at a certain point, there was quite some, well, military political instability. And at that point, you can see that people came from everywhere. Um, and also with the carbon isotope systems, we could definitely identify a couple of them that ate a lot of C4 foods during their youth. Mm -hmm. So that places them definitely somewhere, you know, if you find the combination of the strontium and oxygen and carbon isotope ratios in a massive database we have, um, probably somewhere in, in Hungary. Mm -hmm. And here's the nice thing that actually um, went well with the archaeological evidence they had. So they found some fibulae, which they thought were from the Hungary region, but also the, and, uh, the ancient DNA data mm -hmm. showed that a few of them were definitely not, not from Northwestern Europe. So I think the fact that we are able to tell their stories now and mm -hmm. to, to get more information about how the Roman period, for instance, looked like mm -hmm. in the Netherlands, yeah, I think that's still fascinating. This um, isotope analysis also has applications uh, in the current world. So you don't only have to look at what happened in the past to people, mm -hmm. but you can also, and you're also working on, on um, identification of people now. Uh, what can you tell from um, the, I guess, people that, or the teeth that you can get now? Yeah, so we're, we're working about on about six forensic cases a year mm -hmm. from not only the Netherlands, but also most of them actually from Germany. And what we are trying to do with the isotope analysis is in the end of the day, we won't be able to identify a person. So it's not that I'm looking at your teeth, I'm getting this, this isotope ratio and saying, okay, you know, this is, this is Jane. Um, <laughs> but what we can do if there's if there's no information for the police to work on, so they have no clue where they're looking at, they have no match in the database, there's no missing person reports from any of the surrounding countries. What we can do is analyze the teeth as well, but also the bones, uh, which we don't do in archaeology, by the way, um, but that has to do with diagenesis and the fact it's, it's really uh, susceptible for you know geochemical and physical changes. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you have a forensic case, it's, it's okay. Uh, so what we do is we apply the same isotope system. So we focus still on the oxygen and the carbon and the strontium, but also on lead isotope systems. And what we can do is exclude regions of origin. So, and especially this, the lead isotope systems allows us to distinguish between the eastern part of Europe and the western part of Europe. And that has to do with the fact that back in the old days we had gasoline um, filled with lead as well. Mm -hmm. And there were different sources they used for extracting the lead that was used in the gasoline. So, and still today we can use uh, that difference to distinguish the, uh, between those two parts of Europe. So if we have, if we have a case um, and, and, uh, and I analyze the tooth, for instance, a case from the Netherlands, and I, I analyze the tooth and it says the strontium isotope ratio is, and here it goes, 0.7135, yeah? Um, that number tells me immediately that this person wasn't born and raised in the Netherlands. 
-hmm. I know that for, for sure. And then if you use it or combine it with, for instance, the lead isotope system, that may actually tell us that we should be looking into the eastern part of Europe, so the Poland, Hungary, etc., or even uh, based on the carbon and the nitrogen isotope system we apply as well every now and then, we can say, okay, it's actually, it may be actually Russia. So it helps the police to focus their investigation and every now and then we actually, because they tell me barely anything they know about the case. Mm -hmm. So once I have the data and we have a big meeting, I tell and explain the data and how we can interpret and what it could tell me. And at that point they were like, okay, we thought it was a person from Russia, uh, Russia already. So that confirms their ideas and that helps them to find a more specific way uh, in you know, looking for mm -hmm. potential uh, victims over there. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, you're so welcome. For sharing thank you guys for your expertise and, and your knowledge and, and your experiences with Happy us. Happy to do that. So this time we actually managed to thank her on air, not just in after we finished the recording. <laughs> So I was actually looking into some of the things that Lisette uh, mentioned, and she was mentioning these uh, C3 versus C4 plants. And C3 plants, do you guys know what C3 plants are named after? I have no clue. Yeah, so it's um, the amount of carbons or the number of carbons uh, produced as the first, first molecule within the photosynthetic cycle. So most of the plants we know now are actually C3 plants, like, I don't know, wheat and potatoes and that sort of thing. Um, and C4 plants actually have um, four carbons produced at the end of the photosynthetic cycle. And they usually are found in hot, dry environments. And some of the plants that uh, are C4 plants are, for example, corn or sugarcane. So I thought it was quite interesting that she was mentioning the C3 versus C4 for plants. And then we actually had a conversation about um, how can you trace, for example, the origins of food. Um, and she was saying that usually Dutch strawberries are not really Dutch strawberries. Yeah, because they were actually grown in soil from Scandinavia. So yeah, yeah. the manure, yeah. the fertilizer comes from, for example, from Scandinavia. So the chemical elements they pick up along the growth um, are from Scandinavia. <laughs> but when I was talking to uh, my friends actually about this interview, a lot of them were quite fascinated about the, the fact that the molars in young people kind of erupt from the jaw at specific times. And this is kind of how we can find information about what happened with the person growing up at specific time points. Because once the teeth erupt, the strontium or other isotopes get uh, stop getting incorporated into the enamel. But so we know when the, the teeth erupt. So I think um, the first molar erupts around six to eight years of age. The second one is 12 to 13, and if I'm not mistaken, then the third molars um, erupt afterwards up until the age of 16 or around the age of 16. But actually, nowadays, most people don't really have their wisdom teeth um, grow out of the jaw. So They are still uh, like fixed because they are finished teeth, so nothing yeah. gets incorporated anymore. So if you get your wisdom teeth removed... <laughs> 
Send it would, to Codecare. Bizet would actually be very happy to receive them from you. Too, yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're from a variety of locations, <laughs> not yes. just the Netherlands. <laughs> Because actually, if you look at the teeth of people who grew up in the Netherlands, you will probably not find a lot of Dutch food in there. Yeah. According to the isotopes, because most of our food comes from abroad. Well, most of the manure comes from abroad, right? But also a lot of the food. Like our grains come mm. from somewhere else. Grains mm. is like one of the main things that's consumed here. So if it's not from here, then... So current day you cannot really specify uh, anymore because it's all... Um, globalized it's a bit muddled but then mm. the water um, also affects the yeah isotopes. they look more at the water here than if they want to know where someone's from in the ne- within the netherlands it's more uh, about the water source oh, yeah it's more about the water source because that's very specified to each postal code which source you get your water from yeah That was very interesting that she just drove around the netherlands <laughs> to collect all the samples from the mcdonald's everywhere yeah <laughs> It, I, she had this map the whole time behind her and I was looking at it and there were just points um, in the Netherlands on it. But I didn't think this would be like the map of fast food chains. <laughs> All the collection sources. Yeah. So, but I think overall, during the creation of this podcast um, episode, we've learned a lot about teeth. It was way more interesting than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we want to thank you for listening to the first episode uh we hope you liked it and stay tuned for episodes two and three which are gonna be about what guys well i'm gonna talk about musical anhedonia which is the inability to feel emotions from music so if you think like wow how could that be <laughs> stay tuned <laughs> and my episode uh, of pink elephants is about aphantasia and the inability to visually imagine things So stay curious and see you next time.